0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. The church is a mosaic. It's a mosaic. It's uh, You're familiar with the mosaic. It's this collection of tiles that sometimes forms a pattern or an image, and there's all these different kind of uh, cuts and shapes of these ceramic pieces that are put together. Well, the church is exactly like that. The church is made up of different people, all with different interests and perspective. Each individual represents various histories and, and what's going on in their lives, Despite all of this diversity, though, the church is described as one or unified, which is an astounding thing to say, because the church is nearly 2,000 years old. It's stretched across the globe. It's uh, formed from multiple cultures and places throughout multiple times. And so to say that the church is unified is an astounding thing for us to say. It's repeating the words from the First Council of Constantinople, that the church is one, that it's universal or Catholic, and that it's holy and apostolic. See, the world tries to recreate this sense of unity. But the best it can do is to come up with commonly held held objectives. So some of the best uh, kind of secular unities that we find are in political parties, right? Political parties that have these platforms that they hold to these commonly held ideals. And so they they push and and try to prod that these things would happen. Uh, Paul Hawken was a philosopher. He he described that environmentalism uh, was the largest social movement in human history. On a lesser note, I've heard people describe that uh, CrossFit gyms do unity like no other organization today. Whether it's uh, the Elks Lodge or your political party or whatever else it is, there's multiple organizations that are trying to formulate some sense of unity around commonly held ideals or objectives. That's not quite it, is it? When we're talking about unity, especially within the church... We're talking about something deeper, something more significant. See, the church's unity is otherworldly. It's centered around something that can never be taken from us. The church's center is not an objective to be accomplished. The church's center is a person, Jesus Christ. See, the unity that we have is not in some particular place, in particular time, The unity that we have indwells all of ourselves in Christ, in the Spirit. And so the church has this otherworldly unity that centers around Jesus. And because it's centered around a person who fills all of its adherents, it's fundamentally different than any other objective-laden organization, whether it be your political party or your CrossFit gym or whatever else it might be. See, when we turn to John 17, I think this is what we're going to see. As Jesus talks about our unity with one another and with himself, we're going to see that, that this is true. For the sake of the world, Jesus has united us to himself, to the Father, and to one another. For the sake of the world, as, as a witness to who God is, he's united us to himself, to the Father, and also to to one another, We're also going to kind of see this backwards a little bit as we've phrased it in such a way that we'll actually see our unity together, one another, in verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays that we be one by God's indwelling, in verses 20 through 23. And then in verses 24 through 26, Jesus prays that his disciples will know him and the Father's love. So I want to take a second just to invite you to this final section of Jesus' prayer that we might get a sense of the heart of Jesus, his heart for unity, his heart for how we can be bound up in him and also bound up in one another. So Let's start with this first point, verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays that we be one by God's indwelling. Look at verse 20 and 23 of John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus clarifies his prayer. He starts off and he's telling us exactly who he's praying for. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only. Remember last week we talked about that was the 11. He's praying for the 11. Well, here he's praying on those that will believe in him through their word. What specifically is he going to pray for us? This is Jesus' prayer for us in the 21st century United States and, and us in the 18th century England or us somewhere else in the world as people have placed faith in Jesus through the word of the disciples. What does Jesus pray for his church that come to believe through the word of these 11 apostles? Look at what he says. He prays for unity look at verse 21 that they may be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me see jesus starts off with all of these kind of uh large statements about this unity that's here and as we go through verses 21 through 23 there's just a few things that stand out he's calling us to this pervasive unity But he has specific purposes behind this unity. The first thing we see is that unity is so that the world would believe. That's what he says in verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. This unity that we're to have with one another in Christ is to resemble the Godhead. That's what verse 22 goes on to say. That they may be one even as we are one. That is, we are to be unified, like God is unified. I don't know if you notice this, but every time we go to describe the Trinity, we fall woefully short, right? If we describe it as as um, you know uh, ice and water and water vapor. Uh, we become modalists, and if we uh, describe it like the three leaves of a clover, we become you know, these different things, right? And that's that video that ends with the Patrick statements. If you know what I'm talking about, you have truly lived. But our unity as the body is to mirror forth the interactions of the Trinity to the world. It's to take one of the most profound mysteries that the world has ever known of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, all one but yet individual persons, and it's to mirror forth that mystery to the world. See, Jesus prays for for unity that will image forth this preexistent relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit And you and I are to love one another to such an extent that the world would see that relationship in us. No pressure, right? The second thing, it's not just unity so that the world would believe in verse 21. It's unity sparked by shared glory. Look at verse 22. Look at what Jesus says. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. It's hard to say what Jesus is talking about with this glory. I have a hint, and we'll get to it here in a second. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be the Word. It could be the Gospel. But what does Jesus tell us about this glory? It was given to him that he might give it to us. this glory that Jesus has was given to him so that he might in turn give it to us. The glory you have given me, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory unites us as God is unified. Verse 22 goes on to say that they may be one even as we are one. See, Just a few verses ago in verse 8, Jesus told us that he also had given us something that the Father had given to him. Just like here in verse 22, Jesus is saying that he's giving something to us that was given to him by the Father. He also had given us his word. Look at verse 8. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. Right? And so we can see then that probably this glory that Jesus is speaking is at least tangentially connected to this idea of the word that he's been given and is giving to the disciples. We can safely assume that this glory is the words of God, that given to Jesus, Jesus received these words from the Father, faithfully passed them on to his disciples, and now he's giving us this glory so that we might be unified See, regardless of what this is, we now have access to something we didn't have access to before. Jesus' glory sharing is to pull us together. So we've seen so far in verse 21 that this glory was to uh, unite us so that the world could see us for the sake of the world. Uh, Jesus is talking about this unity. It's sparked by this glory sharing. And finally, it's unity for the testimony of Jesus' commissioning and love. Look at verse 23. That's That was a mouthful that I just said. But Jesus says it better in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus is concerned that these disciples, that the world uh, would show, the disciples would show the world about Jesus' sentness from the Father and his Love his nature as one loved by the Father, right? That's what he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me. Let's just kind of step back for a second, because everything we just hit is just this rich theology. It feels kind of far off from us, doesn't it? What Jesus is praying here, which is so powerful and beautiful, It's easy for us to kind of skim along the top of what Jesus is saying here. So let's kind of recap this. Jesus has given us his glory, his word, for the sake of our unity. Namely, Jesus has given us his word, in verse 8, so that we might be united in the glory of God. And by his new unity and glory, we might mirror forth the ongoing unity of the Father and the Son to the world. One of the key words in this section is that little two-letter word, in. If you're paying attention as we're kind of reading through this, this little word just pops up in these really important places. Look at verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Or verse 23. Jesus says, I in them, and you in me. Jesus is describing this kind of mutual indwelling that's happening in the gospel. That now not only are the Father and Son indwelling one another, now as we are invited to union with Christ, Christ is in us and the Father is in Christ. Or what he says in verse 21 is is somewhat different, that Jesus is highlighting something entirely different or, or stating a different way. He says that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. See, Jesus is kind of getting around this idea that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. We have this new union with Jesus that we didn't have before. See, not only are the Father and Son said to be in one another, Christians are also said to be in God and have God in them. So this morning, as, as we kind of think through this Christian, it's true that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Paul illustrates this for us so uniquely in Ephesians 5. He gives this warning and he says, Do not get drunk with wine but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that this analogy is incidental, that that Paul is just kind of uh, throwing out this analogy of not getting drunk with wine, but instead being filled with the Spirit. The idea is one of control. Perhaps you've been around someone who's been inebriated, and it's almost like the alcohol is doing the talking, right? But that's what it's like to be in Christ. Christ in me. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, the the life of the Christian is manifesting the life of Christ all the time and manifesting the love of Christ for the Father and the love of the Father for Christ. We have this unique capability then of of bringing out to bear before the world the unity of, of God. It's not just that. It's it's not just that Christ is in us. It's that we are in Christ. Colossians chapter three, Paul says this. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That you and I are some way kind of swallowed up in the life and righteousness of Jesus. That my sinfulness isn't just kind of lost there. It's, it's, it's hidden and covered in the righteousness of Christ. There's so much beauty here for us to, to think through. But What's crazy is that Jesus' prayer isn't done. You would think that he would kind of just drop the mic after this statement. But what he says next is equally impressive in verses 24 through 26. See, Jesus prays that his disciples will know him and know the Father's love. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, the first thing we see is that Jesus prays that his disciples will see his glory. That's verse 24. I I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. See, Christian, it's good for us to realize that someday we will be present with Jesus physically. Right now, you know Jesus spiritually. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you. You have a a spiritual connection. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, uh, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... Right, you've got this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But someday, it's not just a spiritual connection. Someday you'll see Jesus. This is what Jesus is describing here, that we would be with him where he is. And there's a particular purpose in that. Jesus wanted us to see his glory. Look at verse 27. Maybe with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. This is so interesting because Jesus has just said that he shared his glory with us. But I think Jesus is speaking of something different here. In fact, Jesus started this prayer with a request to restore his glory. If you look back at verse 5 when Ryan had preached this a couple weeks ago, verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus possesses some glory that's not to be shared with us. And here he's asking the Father that we would see that glory, that we would behold him in that glory that's been restored by the Father God. See, Jesus wants us to see his glory. He wants us to be with him in his Father's presence. And this is strange to us because we feel like it sounds conceited. Like if I were to say, you know, what, I'm really good at, uh, at, at at guitar, and so I want you to, to come and see me play. It sounds conceited. Or a, a kid who's really good at baseball or football, come see my game. It sounds conceited. But there's no amount of conceit here, right? Truth be told, it's a grace to us that we see Jesus' glory. Paul describes in Romans chapter 8, he says that uh, I, I do not consider that the The present sufferings will be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. See, John says that someday uh, we'll see Jesus as he is in his glory, and that will purify us. We might not think of it this way, but I suggest that this is what, what heaven truly is. It's beholding the glory of God. It's an act of kindness that Jesus would allow for us to see him in this glory. It's good for us to see Jesus in his glory. And Jesus prays that his disciples will experience not just a participation in this glory, but also an experience of the Father's love. Look at verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. See, Jesus alone knows the Father. O righteous Father, verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. Jesus hasn't really pulled any punches in this Gospel of John, has he? He's been abundantly clear that he is In unique relationship with the Father. We see it in John chapter 5 the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. John chapter 7 I know him for I came from him and he sent me. John chapter 8, verse 55 But you have not known him, I know him. See, Jesus' claim has consistently been that he alone has a unique relationship to the Father but he also makes the Father known to us. This is what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is making the Father known. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And then again in verse 26, I made known to them your name. See, Jesus is perfectly disclosing the Father so that when Philip just in the couple chapters ago in John chapter 14 said, "Uh, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus looked back at him and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. This morning, if I were to kind of draw for you a self-portrait of what Jason Bradshaw looked like, it would be inevitably distorted, right? My eyes would be out of proportion with my nose or my ears or whatever else. So that image wouldn't be a true reflection of who I am. But what we have with Jesus is when we see Jesus and his acts of love and kindness and mercy, as we've seen it in the Gospel of John, we've seen the Father. The Father has disclosed himself to us through the life of Jesus. I always thought it would be fascinating to be a teacher. You get to meet a child and get to know them. And then the the student, uh, the uh, parent-teacher conferences come along, right? And you get to see little Charlie's mom and dad and kind of put two and two together about where Charlie got some of his traits from, right? I'm sure there are ways in which you would anticipate what the parent must be like by meeting the child. When little Charlie says this or that, you understand that mom and dad probably said this or that too. See, in showing us grace and truth, as John 1 said Jesus would do, Jesus revealed the Father as gracious and truthful. And he did so with unprecedented clarity. He did it in high definition with his disciples. But notice what he really asks the father for in verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We just want to slow down here and just say, did you catch that? Jesus will continue to make the Father known to all of his disciples throughout the ages so that the Father's love and Jesus himself can be in us. See, Jesus is giving us the, the blueprints for communion. And as we continue to learn about God through his word, through the life of Jesus, which is interpreted in the epistles of the New Testament by men like Paul and John and Peter, we're getting to know the Father. We're communing with God through the Spirit. This passage is like luggage. I don't know if you've ever, ever had this experience or not, but uh, a luggage without a handle is really hard and awkward to carry. These six verses, while only a few verses, uh, you know, for us to read through, it can be like having a suitcase without a handle. It's awkward and burdensome for us to carry until we kind of put a handle on it. And so let's kind of review exactly what Jesus has been saying so that we can put the handle on the luggage and we can take it with us. If we don't put a handle on this passage, an easy way to understand it, you, will likely, you likely won't take it out of here with you today. See, the truth that we first find is that we can commune with one another. That's what Jesus prays for, this unity. More specifically, he prays that these disciples might be one as the Father and Son who indwell them. And that this unity would be witness to the world about Jesus' true identity as sent and loved by the Father. See, the truth is what Jesus prays for. First is that you and I and all Christians throughout all time would be unified together in Christ. So we can commune with one another. But also we can commune with the Father and Son themselves. Jesus prays that the disciples will see him in his glory and know the Father's love. He prays uh, this so that God's love may be in them and that Jesus may be in them. In short, Jesus is about two things. He's about unity with others and communion with God through the death of Christ, both established through Jesus. I heard a lesson one time by Sinclair Ferguson, and he said, one of the most common descriptions of who Christians are in the New Testament is these two words, in Christ. See, the truth is, the center of Christian faith is the reunion that we have with the Father through the self-sacrifice of Jesus. See, Jesus has made the Father known. Verses 26 says, I made them to know your name. I made them know to, excuse me, verse 26, I made known to them your name. And we already saw this conversation with Philip where Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is divulging true grace and truth as he's showing us what the Father was like. He continues to make him known. That's what verse 26 says. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus is constantly showing the Father to his people. It's not just that he shows us the Father, kind of like a, a far-off land that you'll never get to. Jesus gives us connection to the Father. We know the Father's love by our union with Jesus. Verse 26 says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Finally, our reunion with the Father through the Son is our union with one another. We have fellowship with one another. 1 John opens up, we have fellowship with one another through our common understanding of Jesus. We have fellowship with one another because we all have connection to Christ. That's our true unity. Christian unity can be a lot of things, but if it doesn't start there with this union with Christ, it's not true Christian unity. See, what the beauty of this passage is, is that as Jesus prays, he's laying out for us a kind of wholehearted vision of what his church would be like deep communion with him, deep communion with one another as we fellowship with God. And all of this is rooted in Jesus' relationship to his Father. I wonder if you and I, if we started to say, let's try and strike up a unity here. Let's try and do a unity uh, outside of the gospel. For whatever reason, we decided to do that. It would go poorly, I would think. We would try and find something to unite around or rally around that wouldn't be the work of Christ. And we would find commonalities, but everything that was common about us probably separated us from someone else. If we got all of the brown-eyed people together and all of the blue-eyed people together and all of the green-eyed people together, it would just put us in camps and separate us. If we got all of us that were, uh, you know, Sports people or non-sports people, or, or if we put all the people together that were male or female, or we just found ways to unite, every time we unite around one thing, it would separate us from someone else. Here's what the beauty of what Jesus is speaking to us, is that now he has united those who were formerly far off from one another, far off from God. And so he's reconciled us to himself through his own blood. Jesus laid down his life at Calvary so that you and I could be uh, given access to the Father again. And because we all have this common access to the Father, you and I, if we're in Christ, have something in common that can't be stripped from us. We have this unity that can't be taken away from us. It's given to us by God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We might stop and just say, okay, what does this mean for us? I think what Jesus is praying, or at least one of the things that he's praying, is that you and I would be together. Maybe you feel like this. Maybe you feel like I feel. Relationships seem to be harder. Relationships seem to be difficult, as I'm speaking to a camera in my office. Relationships seem to be difficult, don't they? I wonder if we were to kind of compare our present moment in 2022 to an era in 1950 or 1900, and we were to kind of compare friendships and the quality of relationships, I wonder what we would kind of pull up. I have to think that somehow we've suffered a little bit of isolation, distancing, separation from one another. Most notably, in the last three years, we've experienced some serious separation. We literally stayed in our houses for seven weeks. So, the application, what Jesus is saying, is be together, be unified, be with one another. See, when we talk about this idea of Christian unity, there's no shortage of confusion about Christian unity. Some have advocated not emphasizing what they consider to be divisive theology in the name of unity. And so we hear this all the time. Well, we don't want to talk about that doctrine because it's too controversial. And some, uh, whether they're parachurch organizations or churches themselves, in order to build a larger tent, they've chosen to put down less tent pegs. They want to invite more people by saying less about Jesus. And oftentimes it feels like we're, we're talking about a different Jesus because there's so little definition of who he is. But notice what Jesus is telling us here in verses 21 and 22 and 23. That our unity isn't about saying less about Jesus. It's about pressing into relationship with Jesus more. About knowing more about the Father. About knowing more about the Son. It's it's actually more defined. If we're to be unified with one another, we don't want to say less about Jesus. We want to know more about Jesus. See, our unity comes by pressing into the Father and Son more. Unity comes in Christ. And so I think it goes beyond saying that if we're going to have unity in the church, it has to be rooted in a clear definition of who Jesus is. You and I, if we're going to have fellowship with one another, we can't be subtly thinking that we're talking about different Jesuses. I've said this before, but um, it's an illustration. If if, if I had a 57 Chevy, uh, I'm out of my league here a little bit about car analogies. But if I had a 57 Chevy, and I told you everything was original, but when you started to look at it, you realized that I had changed the mirrors out, and I changed the stereo, and I'm putting something else inside under the hood that I don't even know how to describe what that is right now. At some point, we're not talking about a 57 Chevy. We're talking about something else. We're talking about a hybrid. That's what we've done with our Christian faith, oftentimes. We've described Jesus as being such and such and so and so. But we've really redefined him in our own way. This kills Christian unity. When we want to be unified, we have to be willing to come to the words of God to see who Jesus is so that we can have fellowship with one another, that we collectively can delight in who Jesus Christ is. See, the truth is that we are more united when we collectively commune with God. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but churches tend to get bogged down in, in uh, inconsequential arguments. If you ever noticed this, churches they argue about carpet colors and music styles when Jesus and the Father are displaced We get lost in these minutiae because we've lost sense of our communion with God in Christ. But Christians who are kingdom-minded cling to Jesus. The best way I can think of to illustrate this is from the scripture itself in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so they devote themselves to these words of God coming through the disciples. And then all of these kind of pictures of unity start to come about. They had all things in common. They were adding to their number every day. They were sharing their bread. They were meeting in their homes. See, the truth is that when you and I start talking about the beauty of Christ, it should pull us together together. It should pull us to be those who who love Jesus. And we should be those who want to be together with those who love Jesus. See, I wonder this morning if if God might make us a people who are unified. Not because of all of our little commonalities. You look around you this morning, there's probably a lot of people who are largely in the same age, economic, social class. Um, they, They look a lot alike but I hope that's not where our unity is. I hope our unity comes from a thriving relationship with Jesus. It comes from knowing the Father because Jesus has reconciled us to Him. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we pray that You would unify us, that You would pull us together. Not because of the commonalities we have, the common objectives or common descriptions that we have, but that you would pull us together because of our common love for you. Lord, witness to our world through our unity. Make your glory known through the fellowship we have with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name.